How would you like to ramp up your club's game day atmosphere? Big Screen Video is giving 10 lucky sports clubs the chance to win a $10,000 grant towards their own digital scoreboard. Register now at iCanWin.com.au slash BSV. On 882 6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Uh, my guest in this episode uh, is one of the legends of AFL, or VFL as it was uh, back when he was playing. Uh, he plied his trade at uh, two of the uh, pre- prestige clubs uh, in Victoria, uh, at Collingwood and at Richmond, before being lured back home to be part of the inaugural West Coast Eagles side. He's known for an, his incredible work ethic, his commitment uh, to fitness off the field and a commitment to attacking the ball on the field. But there is so much more uh, to the life and times of our guest, John Anir. Welcome and thanks for your time. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, nice to be here. Um I, I can't wait to hear more about your um, your time with Luciano Pavarotti as well. When I was doing some research on you, I read that and thought, well, I, I need to hear that story because that's bizarre. I mean, you, you come across some people in your time, but how you and Luciano Pavarotti ended up, you know, yeah, <laughs> touring the world together is quite unusual. Yeah, look, I had an uncle who was a physio, Rob Baker, and um, um, on front and centre of his sort of hallway was this um, picture of... Um, Dame Margot Fontaine, a ballet dancer. Mm. And I thought, holy hell, you know, how, how on earth did you ever come across someone that was so well-known? And, uh, yeah, it's one of these weird things that just falls on your lap and um, mm. it literally did that to me. And, yeah. Uh, I had a wonderful two years trying to make this big unit move. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was – I think it was more the graphs and the and the little sort of, um, you know, counting his steps each yeah. day. It was trying to be innovative that way to get him mm. going more than sort of – trying to get him to do things in a pool. So, yeah, no, very yeah. exciting time. We'll get to that uh, in a little bit because, that yeah, that's a, a pretty epic story in itself. But, uh, John, you grew up in the in the goldfields at mm-hmm. Kalgoorlie Way. Yep. Uh, what did mum and dad do? Um, look, they're both Kalgoorlie people. Yeah. Uh, my dad's a mining engineer. Um, my mother was a teacher. And um, we basically did most of my schooling in Kalgoorlie. We moved then to a place called Widgimultha, which um, it's really – just a very small spot between Coolgardie and Norseman. And uh, we're living on a mine site, which Mm. was fairly unheard of in those days. Most mining towns would have a purpose-built town. So this was one of the first earlier ones where, I guess, sort of the the people running the show would live not far from the mine site. So um, it was only a one-teacher school. Which uh, turned out to be an absolute cracker of a school. Um, and what, a, just a handful of kids? Yeah, thirteen kids. Yeah. And this this uh, particular teacher was a very good footy player in Kalgoorlie, Jack Robinson. He basically just all the kids there just self um, paced, and mm. uh, so in about six months, both of my brothers overtook me. Um, I'd been sent to boarding school, and uh, and th- these two others, just um, you know, my brother Pete and Steve, uh, they just study there at um, Widgimultha Primary and as I said overtook me they it was just a wonderful teaching program mm. they made a 13 hole golf course there and <laughs> um yeah so that that's really um so really heading down to boarding school yeah and then um I was at Christchurch and then took a year off worked in Cambodia on the diamond drilling rigs yeah, back to home 
Yeah, yeah, essentially. yeah. yeah. And, and Cam Bowder's just, uh, oh, it's about 30 minutes south of Cow. So played country footy for a year. And then uh, just very lucky to get asked to come down to um, Claremont. Mm. Um, Graham Moss was coaching and, uh, yeah, just had a wonderful three years mm. of just, uh, in, in some ways, it, there was lots of aspects about playing at Claremont when you sort of just put all your footy time together. It was very, very unique in, mm. in um, I guess, connecting with a lot of people that you still mm. have a lot to do with. And I know that a lot's made about premierships. Um, we didn't, in my time there, didn't win a premiership. Later on they did, but... Um, I don't think that's necessarily the front and centre of, of, of having su- successful friendships in footy. Yep. It's just a, having a collective group of people that have a good chemistry, look after each other, and, and that yep. still happens today. Yep. Yeah, that um, that small town, close knit community, you know, quiet life of being out in a tiny town mm. uh, where you grew up. Is that still where you feel sort of most yourself, most at home? Do you yeah. do, do you like the open space and the people? Yeah, of I life? do, but it's it's a bit weird, you know. I, I'd love to be able to say you can go back and um, see where you used to live, but unfortunately... Is it even there anymore? No, that's that's yeah. the thing. We, when we lived in Kalgoorlie, we lived in a place called Trafalgar, and Dean Irving lived there. I think Kempy lived further yeah. up the road. But you go to the Trafalgar now, it's at the very end of the pit. And um, so, <laughs> yeah. so you can't really take your kids back and say, look, these are the sand dunes or slime yeah. dunes we used to... You know, tunnel in and yeah, this hole wasn't here. Then. Yeah, yeah, and the Boulder Block Hotel, all those stories of um, these miners coming up, getting some King Browns at lunchtime, and taking it back down, and you know they'd bring the odd bit of gold up through the back door. So all those stories that were just so unique. It's just yeah. in some ways a real shame that it all went, but yeah. time moves on, and 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 Calgary's prospered because of that, that mm. big pit. Um, yeah, but it also has other issues. I mean. You know, a lot of the guys now are working around the clock on 12-hour shifts, so you, you don't have that normality to be able to play sport. Mm. And I think that's, um, you know, it suffered a bit in Kalgoorlie, you mm. know, getting numbers to be able to turn up to training yep. and being very much around a roster. So, yep. look, big changes, but I, I just had a wonderful life there and yeah. had a stint in Norseman as well. And, yeah, so that's really where my real roots are for sure. The change, you know, going from that very small community in the goldfields to a boarding school atmosphere at, at, at Christchurch. Did you take that in your stride or was that a bit of no, a shock to the system? No, it's, it, um, you know, I, I laugh now, but um, Twiggy Forrest, he was in the other boarding house. Twig and I spent more time in in sort of the, the medical centre. I think Twig because he'd be fighting all the time and me because I was bawling, you know. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and the, if you ever watch Ripping Yarns, there's that great sort of um, thing where the school leopard kept catching the student that tried to escape and that was a bit... Bit of me, I think, to try and get to the station and. Jump oh, you were on a, you were out of there. You're yeah, I was out of there. Yeah, and uh, I think I wrote a letter to my mum every night, and so it was. A, it, it wasn't a really good time to separate from family and my brothers. You know, I was very close to them, and um, but you know, it, it's funny how things happen. You know, I look back on it, and sometimes we'd be maybe a bit over precious nowadays. Um, what that did is, is made you just sort of afford it, find a footing mm. that got you solid and that's where sort of I really I could run but I really then made running a big thing yep. and uh, then found I found some sort of safe zone by you know connecting with a lot of the, the school coaches and mm. uh, and again it just sort of toughened you up a bit mm. I, I don't think I'd put my kids through it um, yeah but you, you do definitely you're forced to be resilient yeah there was no way 
you know, I could get on those trains anymore at East Perth Station. They got to know me or they'd already have a, a, a phone call from the school. He's, he's heading your way. And <laughs> so, um, yeah, so the interesting times. Yeah. Right? So was Twiggy a mate of yours then? Yeah, yeah. He, so yeah. Twig, um, Twig had a real rough time there. Um, <clears throat> he had a uh, – look, he, he sort of – he had a bit of a stammer and I don't, I don't think Twig would mind me, you know, telling the story, but – and would be teased a bit and um, – he would let rip, and uh, he would take on any kid, any size, yeah. and and I can. I think he's still got a bit of that. He in him, definitely has, he? yeah. yeah. And look, in, and <laughs> he tells a great story how his dad then moved him to Hale, and he says, "You better get get a bit rid of that, otherwise it's going to happen again." And so he joined the debating team at yeah. Hale, and the rest is history. Mm. So you know, in some ways, it built massive resilience in his world as well. Mm. I mean, look, going to boarding school now is you, there's so much more, you know. There's so there's so many things that just weren't right living yeah. in those times, and it just doesn't happen now. But yeah, um, uh, yeah. yeah, formative years though. Yes. Uh, so why did you go back to the goldfields then after you'd finished school? Uh, did you want to get out of the city? Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. yeah, just just felt very comfortable. You know, I was, and my wife says now, you know, I've still got that cowgirly bogan in me. You know, <laughs> like, I'll, I'll get. You know, I like getting out on dirt bikes and yeah. and doing just stuff that's just the opposite to Chris. You know, she's a surfer, so we are really poles apart. But yeah, I, I just it just that's just where you grow up and and you you just have that yeah the smell of the the countryside. Yep. it's just very different. The yeah. big open space. Yeah, yeah, and and really good people. You know, I'd yeah I disappear there for a while and you you get back there and it's just mm. just normal. So mm. it's yeah, it's it's a. It's a nice sort of, um, you know, comeback spot, that's for mm. sure. So then, you know, f- from there to Claremont, essentially, under Graham Moss, <laughs> um, but then an even bigger step. I mean, there's Goldfields to Perth, but then there's Perth to Melbourne mm. um, to go and play for Collingwood. Yeah. How did, how did the, the switch from Claremont to Collingwood come about? Um, I, I was playing with a guy called Kevin Worthington, yep. and he'd come back to Perth and... Felt I think he felt there was still plenty of footy left, mm. and um, so I guess with the people coming to over to uh, Perth to reconnect with him, and by the way, he was a really good mate of Stan Magro, so mm. um, so they they um, and I guess Kevin just I was very lucky enough to for him to sort of ask Collingwood to have a look at me, and um, and I think they wanted that sort of type of player yeah and uh so i was just very very lucky yeah. and uh you know i hadn't played state footy um it was sort of one of those um you know i guess you get that opportunity just you know that where many others could have also gone. Oh, look guys like noel morton mm. um daryl peniza yeah they, they they are guys that i definitely think could have made vfl afl mm-hmm. those times but it was just you just get that lucky opening and yep. uh I was lucky enough to go to a, a club that was struggling a bit, and so that really gave me an opportunity to get a spot. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I was yeah. lucky enough to keep keep moving along. We need to take a break, John, but after that we'll get into more of your Collingwood days and then on to Richmond, some incredible people that you met uh, along the way. So we'll talk about that too. This is Inspiring Stories. John and is our special guest. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. 
This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, footy legend John Anir is our special guest. Uh, John, um, the 80s, you know, what a time. Uh, but what a time for, for you to go across to a club like Collingwood um, to play VFL. Um, you know, muddy grounds, you know, you played hard, you played hard off the field. Um, just paint a picture for us. What what was it like going to Melbourne as a young man uh, to join a club like Collingwood? Well, it, it just had everything. Um, I, I um, ended up boarding with a wonderful family, uh, the Williamsons and Choco, Choco Williams yep. also boarded with me. So on one hand, we've got all the wildness that happens at Collingwood and I've got, I'm living with the Pope, Choco. <laughs> and, um, but he, he was, he was great around. Um, so when, when Choco and I arrived, it was in 81 and, um, Collingwood had just copped that hiding from, um, Richmond in the grand final. That's where Bartlett kicked you know, seven or eight goals. Mm. So it was sort of exciting to be around a club that, <clears throat> um, it was, it was up there. Um, but the, I, I look in my um, year, the first year and a half, I played under Tommy Hafey. And mm. um, I, I just think it was sort of, it was that sort of father figure that um, that is, sits alongside your own dad. But yep. you, you obviously listen to someone more than your own dad. And um, Tommy and, and I, and, and with a lot of other young guys, if you were prepared to sort of, have that interest in looking after yourself. Tom, we would give you everything. And to give you an idea, he'd get to training at four o'clock. He'd load up the bench press. He'd be doing about 200. You know, in those days, it would be about 100 kilos. He'd be whacking mm. those out. And he was as fit as a fiddle. He'd do mm. all the pre-season running. And um, he was just a wonderful mm. mentor. And he, he really looked after. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting, when he was um, given the... Um, the move on mid-season in the next year, you know, it ended up being about eight of the young guys had all just got in cars and went there. And we hadn't planned it, but there was just an arrival of all these. Everyone just wanted to do it. Yeah. Because you just, you just feel like you really wanted to play for him. So yeah. that, that was really the wonderful thing. What I didn't appreciate about Collingwood as much as I do now is um, it's a bit like you, you, you've joined a motorcycle gang. You know, mm. you, you, you're a... You're part of that forever and ever. They didn't put and a tattoo on you, did they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know around that way. There were a couple of lame swallows and uh, and a few nicknames on cars. But, yeah, no, that wasn't really the big thing. Um, but, yeah, they really do, you know, and, and I went to a function a number of years ago and Eddie Maguire said, look, I tried to get Dermot Brereton here. And he said, um, we know he's a Hawthorne champion and and we, he'll always be the Hawthorne champion. But the fact he did play a game for Collingwood and whether you play one or 300 – You've helped and you've been part of the Collingwood thing. And I thought, wow, that, that really resonates that mm. um, what the foundations of that footy club are. Mm. And they do some marvellous stuff, you know, yep. with players going through some really difficult times. There's, they have a significant fund that's available. Um, so it's a, it's a magnificent club mm. in, in looking after people. Um, and I, I really appreciate that, yep. appreciate that further down the track. It, it was a different time footy-wise, wasn't it? You had those suburban grounds there. Uh, mm. And if you, you know if you know the geography of Melbourne, you know, there's a, there's a cluster of suburbs that are essentially next to each other. It's very territorial. Yep. Um, and, you, you know, your home ground advantage is significant. Uh, what was Victoria Park? What was it like playing 
at well, Victoria Park when you've got a you know a character like Tom Hafey coaching, mm. you've got Stan Magro, people like that on the field, you, you, a young Peter Dacos, yeah, even at that time, yeah, and there's Renee well, Kink and yeah. and Peter Moore. Look, it, it was amazing. Um, when we arrived, um, the, the newer batch like Dacos and Shaw and 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 Co, um, we weren't used to Tommy's training, and mm. and so you'd have a Friday, you'd have a Saturday game. Monday would be a recovery, which session would be an hour and three quarters. So you'd be doing circle work and circle work and circle work. Tuesday night would then be the big session. So yep. that would be two and a half hours. Yep. And it'd be contesting and contesting circle work. Um, and then Thursday, we would get maybe 5,000 people training and that would still be an hour and a quarter. So as much as younger players could handle it, the older guys just got so sick of it. And, um, yeah. and so... Come game day, um, uh, I guess that was the other part of it. It was just a massive following. And, yeah. Um, uh, you're right. It was very territorial. You, that was your patch. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they'd play cricket all through the summer. And as um, soon as the, the wet rains came, that sort of cricket pitch here was just... Yeah, washed gooey. away. Yeah. <laughs> and the shorts were sort of about half the size of what they are these days. So, so it was sort of a, a very interesting mix of these sort of near-on bikinis and mud everywhere. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but look, it, that, it'll never be those days again, but they're, they're etched in I yeah. guess, every person's mind of just that real VFL time mm. where, you know, you, you, your suburb was around yeah. the, the stadium that you played and at. You, the, you wore that yeah, badge. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, 1983, the, the third and final season there, um, mm-hmm. was probably your best. Yep. At Collingwood, um, and yet by the end of it, you were about to leave. That, yeah, look, take us back to that time. Yeah, and what prompted the move to Richmond? It, what happened the previous year? Richmond um, or Collingwood had got hold of Reigns and Cloak. Mm. So, and they they, they there was re- a real tit for tat sort of transfer rivalry too, wasn't there it between? Was, yeah, the, the and that sides. really wrecked Richmond. Yeah, you know they they were they were two you know uh, iconic uh, the players mm. in Richmond. And so Richmond then came back Collingwood and, and scooped five out of the six in the best and fairest and thought, well, so Phil Walsh, myself, um, Craig Stewart, um, Neil Peart, I think Wally Lovell. So there was a few of us that, Noel Lovell, a few of us that um, then were just given offers to, to move there. And, and I know Walsh and I, we, we, it was never our intention to sort of move. Yep. It was just hopeful that Richmond, sorry, Collingwood would sort of, yeah, maybe reward reward us a bit, but yep. they just weren't prepared to move. I think they they just spent so much money on these other guys. So look, it's one of those things that just happened so quick, and before yep. we knew it, we're in another we're in another sort of club. And um, I look back on it, and as much as I've met some great guys at Richmond, um, I sometimes think just playing out your time at, at one club is a better way. Y- you regret uh, the move? Well, in some ways, yeah. Mm. Uh, um, it, it was very hard though to sort of. Um, you know, uh, I guess being young and being wedged in all that, mm. um, things just happened. Very, we ended up going to the Supreme Court on about day two. Um, the deal was done and yeah. Walsh and I were over at Richmond. Yeah. You, I mean, you played some good footy there though, didn't you? At 84, you were second in the club's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. best well, and it, fairest count. Yeah, so it all just started to happen then. Mm. You know, and then um, got, got a chance to play State of Origin back here. And so, um, yeah, it, it by that stage, it sort of, Mid twenties, you'd sort of yep. found out what it was all about. Yeah, and um, but it's interesting in in that time at 
at in the six years at um, Melbourne, I had six coaches. So I started to wonder whether it, whether it was me that was just... You brought some sort of curse. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so... And then, then obviously West Coast started and they, they were really keen to get six season yep. players. And mm. um, it's a, in some ways, maybe that cut myself short a bit because mm. um, you're really there just for a time to set the bar for the young crew coming through. Yep. And... And there was just a wonderful group of, of plays coming through, and and that obviously went on to ninety two and ninety four. Mm. So when, when you're at uh, Richmond towards the end of your stint there, at what point did you start hearing whispers about you know the the arrival of West Coast and the comp and and maybe that you would be a part of that? Yeah, I, I never really just never really took an interest in. It. I was happy at um, happy at uh, Richmond. Um, I got into physio over in. In Melbourne, I did radiography, then got into physio. Had a great job at a sports medicine centre where Barry Richardson um, ran. Yep. Um, and so it was really an out of the blue call from Mossy and said, "Look, would you want to come home?" And um, at that stage, it it really was if I was going to move back to Perth, this was the time. Otherwise, I'd end up finishing physio. Fair chance I could work with Barry, and and so forth. And so that was really thinking. Yeah, my parents, my brothers are over back in Perth, and it was almost again one of those things that just knocks on your door. Yeah, uh, and and I, and I took it. Mm. And, um, yeah, so I, I guess arriving back here, there was Malaxis, Wiley, Glendinning, Turner, Phil Narkel, and myself, which were the older of yeah. the of the group, and the, um, who had a as you said a role to play not just on the field, but in mm. guiding some of the the new recruits into the rough and tumble of of top level football. Yeah, look, it was was that, and 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 it just wasn't me. Dean Turner was a very good runner. Ross was very strong mm. in the gym. So all of a sudden, these these young guys have come out of, of um, waffle clubs that yeah. barely had a gym, and yeah. all of a sudden, looking at what these fellas were doing, and you know, and benchmark times, yeah. you know, in the two k and the fifty yeah. minute run test, you know, to yeah. you know to run eleven laps in mm. eleven and a half laps, it was just done. So all of a sudden. Just bringing all those training habits back, and one mm. of one of them in particular was Dean Turner because Fitzroy at that time um, uh, yeah, were, were a very fit group, and they were they, were, they set you know real targets for you yeah. don't know what everyone's doing, and they were the first ones to do triathlons off season. So he he um, was really everyone used to watch Dick, you know what what they were doing and think well if they can do it we can do it so mm. that doesn't happen in one year you know mm. it's it's a one or two years for everything sort of just to start to build mm. so really to, to to just miss out on the finals in the first year mm. getting used to travel I don't think there was yeah you know on the way home on the plane you know fellas would have a bit of a drink I mean the professionalism that goes on now yet for us to be thrown to the deep end and just do all that travel Mm. And just learning as you go, I mm. think it was just a remarkable effort to, yeah. to nearly get in the final. Absolutely. And speaking of um, travel and coming home, there is, of course, that that uh, that legend now that uh, is attached to your name, John, about yeah. the time you ran home yeah. from the airport uh, after a disappointing game. I'll get you to tell that story uh, in full right after we take a break. John Anir is our special guest. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. 
This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, Our special guest is a footballer known for being uh, incredibly fit uh, and committed and hard as nails uh, on and off the field. Um, John, we're at the point now where you're at West Coast, uh, the, the first days of West Coast's uh, existence. Uh, you, of course, were one of the, the senior members of that, that squad early on. Um, your, you know, your fitness was pretty well known then. You were regarded as one of the fittest, if not the fittest blokes uh, in the AFL. Um, how did you sort of, I suppose, transfer that passion uh, throughout the squad when you got back? Because you do have to set an example when you're in that uh, elder statesman yeah. slot, don't you? Yeah. Um Look, because because you've sort of you got a new coach, mm. um, they're not sort of saying, "Oh, look, you know, this year, last year, you you did this well. This year, let's just concentrate on such and such." You know, you start at scratch again with a new coach, and, um, and you know what I could do was, you know, I could run, yeah, you know, I could sort of push a bit in the gym. So, you know, I guess you 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 just throw your best foot forward mm. and. Uh, and so, and but it had other like-minded people around it, and yep. and the other thing we had all these young kids that were so impressionable. Yeah, that was the other thing. I mean, like a young John Walsh, oh, for yeah. instance. I mean, yeah. you would have what eight or nine years on, yeah. on Wusher, yeah, I who became so. sort of one of the. I mean, I dare say well, he took some cues from you along the yeah, way. Well, he, he what was up, he like as a teenager? Yeah, well, he ended up just it's really the roles that when we first went to Collingwood, we were the mm. sort of, we were green around the ears and. You know, it'd be the younger guys that always end up being locked in the sauna and the thing was turned up to 200 degrees. So <laughs> yeah, the young ones often took the, the brunt of the jokes. But, Sounds uh, like boarding school. Yeah, yeah, like yeah that's right. <laughs> so so Wush was, and there was a, a quite a few, you know, not just Wusher, Monkey, Brennan, you know, yeah. all, they all, um, you know, it was a very exciting times and they're all young. So yeah. it, it was a really, um, you know, they really got on board. So, yeah. you know, and again, the names I've mentioned, in, in all different facets, all just sort of had um, a bar set that took mm. these guys out of waffle and thought, holy hell, this mm. is where I've got to get to now. Mm. now. If someone didn't kick a ball well to Glendinning, he'd let them know. And that mm. was like, wow, that's, that's not accepted. Mm. Local level, well, yeah. I'll try I'll harder. Try yeah. better next time. Yeah. 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 Um, one of the great stories that people know you for uh, was post, I think, a, a, a loss to Geelong. You've... Uh, dragged yourselves back on an interstate flight mm. um, and then you were so disappointed with your own performance that you ran home from the airport. Firstly, true story? It is, yeah. yeah. I, I don't think I can escape that now. Um, your, your girlfriend and friend at the time, I think, were at the airport. Yeah, they were, yeah. yeah. So, they, so you've abandoned them and gone well, for Well, yeah, yeah, look, I, I was... Um, <laughs> I was a sad sack on the plane. Um, <laughs> I, I'd, I'd spent a fair bit of time on the pine. There was a bit of a misdemeanour behind the gut, behind the the uh, ball and Ron thought that wasn't a good example um, but but by you I wasn't getting a kick and at that same time I think I had some ridiculous number of physio exams I don't know why it was ever like that so my, my brain was just exploding so yeah it was a hell of a long ride back on a bus and then getting on a plane to come back to Perth so I, I just felt like I was got to get out and run and yeah. uh in the, in the going, dirty old shorts and socks. Yeah, and I, had, been, I had the white business right, shirt. Yeah. And I think I'm just looking at the bridge where I ditched the shirt. And, um, <laughs> but I, I think I would have escaped except the fact that um, Tommy Stanich, he was the chairman of selectors, he was putting along in his car and spotted me. 
and then he parked his car up at the brewery and just was the only car in the car park. And um, so as I've run past, I thought it's an unusual car there by, by itself. And then the next minute I got to the uni and where that seafood van is normally parked, mm. there's Tom out there on the path waving his hands and uh, saying, look, do you want a lift? And I thought, nice one, Tom. I'm at the, eight, I'm at the 18K mark. I've got three Ks to go, and now you're offering me a lift. And, uh, so I just look, look, I'm fine. He said, you're sure? You're sure? I said, look, I'm nearly home. So, um, uh, yeah, so that, that got home. But that, that's not normal behaviour today. No, nice maybe not. Job. But um, And then <laughs> by that stage, my... I sort of quickly caught up with everyone else like it wasn't um, hadn't done anything silly, uh, in <laughs> hindsight maybe. But, um, yeah, and then so if it wasn't for Tommy Stanich, I think it would all be just a hidden story. But uh, sometimes I used to sort of go for a bit of a run after games just to sort of clear the head. I'd rather yeah. do that than, you know, um, yeah. you know, let it fester. Drown your sorrows. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Well, another Tommy, Tommy Hafey, he'd be proud. Well, he, he right actually now, rang, think, he he? rang yeah. about two days later and, and asked, did you do that? <laughs> and he wanted to know how far it was and how quick I did it. So Could you do it faster next time? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, so Tommy always liked that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, how would you characterise in your time at, at West Coast? How do you reflect on it? Obviously, it's sort of the third uh, chapter of your VFL career. How, how do you reflect on that time? Um, I reflect on West Coast um, very differently. You know, um, I look. It's a wonderful club. It's got lots of history, but um, I I felt, you know, at Collingwood and Richmond, and maybe they've got access to the MCG. They've got plenty of space to, you know, have past players. But it's very limited to what West Coast can offer past players. So, mm. and the and the and look, it's no fault of anyone. It's just that. The basis of how this club was formed in Perth was by businessmen and business people invest to get an outcome. And when you look at more the historical clubs in Melbourne, they, you know, they're suburban cricket and turf and football clubs. Mm. And that's where I think there's such a respect to people that have done their bit at the club, whether it's again your Dermot Brown with one game or a Tony Shaw that's played 300. You've really been integral integral in that growth of the club, mm. and, and unfortunately, it's very different with West Coast. It's a business, um, and I don't think in the early days it was set up to really have that respect of of, of the people that have served their time there. Yeah. So, and I just think that that's Has just that the changed, way it is. Has that changed? Do you think, given that they've now been around for a fair um, while? Look, I I don't think it do you has. See it differently? But, but I I think. One day, if they end up getting people from other clubs to be involved here mm. in admin, they may see that and think, well, where's, your, where's the player welfare? Not just the players doing their time now, but how do you look after your players after? Mm. Where, where do they meet? Mm. Um, what, what's functions? And um, so unfortunately, everyone sort of does their bit and then disappears. Mm. And um, but that's just that's just the way it is. Mm. You go to a Collingwood Pass player function, be two hundred players there, and you know it doesn't matter who or what you've done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so yeah, so that's that's just the way it is. Yeah. And so, do I go to the footy? You know, look, I, I'll I'll um, I'll go, but it's not part of my life. And I think yeah. if I was in Melbourne, it it it'd be very much a, a strong connection to go and 
see your mates regularly because they're going mm. to be there. And it's easy to get sidetracked with kids and footy and weekend sport, but there comes a time when they all disappear. You, you want to reconnect. Mm. And I guess some of us are at that age now, and um, it's hard to reconnect because, because of just the way things are structured. So putting you on the spot here, John, Eagles v Collingwood, who are you rooting for? Well, look, I've, <laughs> I look, I, I just think it's one of those things where I you're sit there. You're going to give there, me a non-answer, aren't you? Yeah, look, yeah. I sit there and I just have a foot in both camps, and yeah. um, and then you I've don't got really a mate mind who wins. No, I don't. Yeah. No, and I've got a mate then who's coaching there, and you you're following Guy McKenna here and Scotty Waters there and Dean Lady and Wush. Yeah. So and then and then you even get to a point where Glenn Bartlett's trying to do something with with Melbourne. I tend to sort of. Just sit there and just hope everyone has a good day. You know, yeah. I'm not yeah. not next to someone on the couch there mm. who's screaming and almost going to commit yeah. a hurry car if they don't mm. lose. Yeah, so. um, the, the turnover of coaches that you <laughs> mentioned <laughs> during your time in in Melbourne, it sort of continued here, didn't it? Um, well, it did. By the end of it, you yeah. saw how many how many did you go through? Well, after year how many 10. Careers, how many yeah. careers did you kill? <laughs> well, that, that, that's right. And... Um, uh, well, I ended up having nine coaches in 10 years. And yep. I think Mick thought, Mick was a bit smarter than me. And he thought, well, if I don't get rid of Ania, he'll get rid of me just to keep <laughs> this sort of record going. So I thought I could have played for another five years, but Mick sort of thought, right, I, I've got to get rid of him. Um, no, but, but that's, no, but that, that's basically, yeah, it, it's sort of, um, a very turbulent time of mm. just turning over of, of yep. coaches. And, um, and, uh, and I think, um, yeah, so there was that element of instability, mm. you know, just that you got this new coach each mm. each year. So. Yeah, something you probably had to get used to yeah, over many yeah, years. Right. Having said uh, that, you know, seeing so many of them then come and go, I'm guessing you would have learned a few things about what makes a good coach and, and well, what makes them survive or not survive in a mm. position. Did you ever sort of accumulate that knowledge and think, well, perhaps I'll give it a crack myself? Um. Look, I, there was an opportunity at Claremont at one stage and in South Frio, but I, I sort of veered more towards family. Mm. Um, but interesting, um, I did sort of have uh, done this sort of this retrospective um, study back to 1981 when I first started playing and looked at all the coaches and have come up with around 24 measurable traits and using that as a predictor. And uh, without sort of going into too much, why I wouldn't be a good coach would be a couple of things. Um, firstly, I had more sons and daughters, so that that's a, a cross against you. <laughs> um, the second thing is um, um, one of the real factors, and if you look at the last 20 years, there's been 15 coaches that won premierships, yep. and they've all been premiership players. Right. And and I think that's that's a significant that's not a 50 50 that, mm. that's that's a significant step mm. um, and another one that's it's interesting which has changed a bit now there was around a 30 percent um, portion of the successful coaches up to recent times that had a teaching background is that right yeah so when you look at it if you've got more boys you may have to make a hard decision and maybe sell off a couple <laughs> go and do a dip ed and teach. And whether you win a premiership, better, yeah, whether you sort of count the Royals in Albany as a <laughs> yeah. as a thing, um, 
but it, it, there's a very, very strong focus that you've yeah. got to have gone to the big dance yeah. and, and experienced it. When you say won a, won a premiership, you're talking about a, a VFL or AFL you're premiership? Yeah, or if you had to be an, an, a, a state level, player. yeah, okay. Yeah. So if you take Alistair Clarkson out, yeah. you know, that he's, he's a bit of a um, an outlier in that sense. Yeah. Um, if you took him out, then all of a sudden you've got, you know, what's that? That's 15 out of 16. I think Luke Beveridge was the other one, but mm. the others have all been you know, premiership players. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, yeah. So that's, um, yeah, so hopefully I'll tidy that up soon. And, so uh, there's a few people coaching now who wouldn't want to read that, but a few people who might. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, John, we need to take another break. After that, though, I want to hear about uh, your adventures uh, in the Hawaiian Ironman, you know, probably the toughest event of any kind uh, on the planet. So, you know, c- clearly you're mad. Uh, but as well about uh, Luciano Pavarotti, how that uh, association came to be. John O'Neill is our special guest. This is Inspiring Stories. Back with more soon. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. John O'Neill is our special guest. Uh, John, post-football, your commitment to fitness uh, didn't diminish at all uh, to the point where you then decided to compete in probably the toughest event on the planet, the Hawaiian Ironman. Uh, was it almost a 4K swim, 180K ride, and then a full marathon uh, run? You're mad, right? Well, it was always... Um, we we uh, Again, back in Richmond days, Phil Walsh and I, we... We sort of off season we'd go off and do these little mini ones around Melbourne, mm. and holy hell, it was it was so cold over there. So it was always been in mm. the back of mind. So when I finished footy, there was sort of a, a bit of a, a bit of a void there. So I just did the local scene for a while. Um, then uh, post kids, um, then thought right, I, I, I want to go to the big dance. So went and did this tra- this qualifying event in China, which yep. was honestly it's. Uh, uh, a, a lot of pros were there, and uh, they they all said this is the hardest race you'll ever, ever do. It was 48 degrees. They'd run out of water on the drink stations. There was ambulances going up and down, and it was on an island called Hainan Island, which was sort of like a big golf resort thing. Yeah. So it prepared me well because I thought nothing's going to be as bad as this. Yeah. Um, so getting to, to Kona, um, so I qualified in, in China, and that was my first time um getting to Kona uh it, it's sort of like um what's it like it's it's torture well it starts off at a lovely day because the swim's just beautiful you yeah. it's big sort of there's these white dolphins that sort of you'd see every so often so the swim you get out of there in just think this this is pretty yeah. good this is all right yeah you, you get on a bike um you head out and you basically climb this hill to where there's a an old volcano called um and that's called Harvey, and you turn around thinking that it's downhill, but unfortunately, the, the sort of the breeze starts to come in, so mm. you've sort of gone uphill, and then thinking there's a breeze to help you home, but but you've now got a little mini sea breeze, so mm. you get sort of an hour to get back into the, the the changeover. It starts to really thinking this is now not becoming fun, mm. and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and normally you're in Bustleton, you're sort of getting off the bike and you think, right, 
I haven't trashed myself too far, but all weird stuff starts going on. You know, you, you start feeling hot, then you start feeling cold, then you're not sure if whether you wanted to eat, then you're getting started to get agy, and then you start looking at your power meter more and more because you're trying to work it all out. But it's the body just starting to go through its first sort of moment of just thinking, well, I'm not sure if I'm going to be around much longer here. So you get back in, change over, and then then the run starts. And and thankfully, the first part of the run is down this sort of boulevard that's covered in palm trees. And that's almost like gives you a false sense of recovery because you finish that back into the, the changeover area, and then they send you back out onto what they call the Big K. And this is basically this bitumen road that has the ocean over to the left and volcanic rock to the right. And this volcanic rock is the same colour as the road. It's just black. Radiates. And it just radiates. So yeah. it's looked like someone's gone and put alfoil yeah. in either side and it's just they're following you with alfoil just radiating yeah. heat. And it, it basically just gets ugly from there. And, <laughs> um, and they throw you down a bit of a hill and there's a little jazz band at the end. You think, well, that, that gives you a momentary thing of, <laughs> yeah. you know, getting back to a bit of a... A happy phase, but you leave the jazz band, and then it's the torture about, continues. Yeah, mm. and, and that's where. And so, as much as you may have the most expensive bike and the best swimmer in the world, that's where it all just starts to happen. Where people yeah. literally just stop, shuffle, um, sit on the side of the road, mm. and it was an amazing thing. As I was coming back in the second year that I did it, there was a lady there that <laughs> coming out had literally one of those boots you get from the orthopedic surgeon so she'd obviously had a stress fracture and I said holy shit she's swum she's ridden a bike on it and uh and I can just remember that just saying that that is a, yeah. that is a committed person and yep. and finally there was a there was a nun at 80 years of age wow and and she she'd obviously to qualify in her age group was a little easier than others but she was out there that's doing incredible it well. yeah yeah um, yeah, so that that's that was a crazy few years doing those. I bet. And talk about a crazy few years. Really quickly, how on earth did you become the personal physiotherapist for the Italian opera legend Luciano Pavarotti? Well, again, that, I, I, you're going to have to give us the abbreviated. Yeah, look, it, it was just a real chance thing. His manager um, was uh, managed a young lady who's in Perth um, uh, by the name of Hayley Ecker, and. Pavarotti had finished his second concert in Australia and had really hadn't got great reviews. He'd been sitting and looked old. So the poor old physio that they had, an Italian guy, they shipped him out on the Sunday morning because they, they found he'd been playing cards and eating with the big fella. So um, as a last-minute ditch, in, instead of all this tour folding up, um, uh, Jeff Ecker rang me and said, can you give mm. him a try in the pool? Mm. And so, look, the long and short of it was... I had him. Got in him pool. on his feet again, and got him in the pool. He loved yeah. the pool because it took the weight off uh, yeah. him. And, and then, as we finished the first session, thinking this was all over, um, he said, "John, John, you want the photo?" So he, uh, I said, "Look, that'd be great. I'll, I'll just prove to the fellas on the yeah. ne- next day that this is what it my happened. Sunday was about." Yeah. So I took a photo, and um, the photo appeared about two hours later at the reception area. And the lady there rang me, and said, "Look, you got your photo here. The big German bodyguards have brought it in." So I arrived at work the next day, and there's his lovely photo that he'd signed. In the envelope, there was $300 US, and mm. it said, Dear John, I hope you enjoy your dinner. And I thought, well, $300 US, and I think the parody is about 60, 60 
cents yeah. to the dollar. That was about a $500 fee. And I thought, well, if the big fellow wanted me to have $500 dinners, <laughs> I'll end up being his size in about three months. But look, it all just happened then that um, about a week later, I yeah. joined his touring party and then basically... Toured the world with him. Toured the world and then lived in, lived in Modena with him. And um, yeah, it was just... Incredible. Again, one of those just chance things that happened. Yeah. yeah, still amazing. Uh, I wish we could hear more of that, John, but unfortunately... <laughs> We are out of time. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story. It's been fascinating. Thank Pleasure. you. Thanks, Tim. Uh, you've been listening to Inspiring Stories, the inspiring story of John Anea here on 882 6PR. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA inspiring story. Life's busy. Take this deck. There's heaps to do on it, like um, polishing off this wine. That's tough. Life's pretty good with a Trex deck. Composite decking with no hard maintenance. Trex, the world's number one decking brand.